If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's Monday, February 13th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks and talk about how voters are reacting to Donald Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of the Capitol that affect their lives. On the hook this week, Patty Mazzei of the Miami Herald, Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Chris Catalago of the Sacramento Bee. Hey, Patty, what do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about the issue that's roiling cities and counties outside of D.C., which is their sanctuary status for immigrants and what Trump may or may not do to them. I want to talk about Donald Trump and his pro-Israel posture and whether that can square at all with the anti-Semitic messages that have emerged first from his campaign and now from his White House. And then we've got to circle back to our favorite subject, 2018-2020, who's making moves three weeks into Trump's White House, preparing for the next election. I love the lightning round. One more thing before we start. We want to hear from you about what you're seeing and hearing in your state. So please email us and share at btb at That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Hello out there, Colin. Hey, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing well. Chris, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm here in sunny California. Hi, Anita Kumar, covering Trump in the White House. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. And I've spent a weekend learning that the old president is just like the new president and they love golf. (laughs) Yes, they do. And Katie Glick, our senior political correspondent here in D.C., nice to see you again back from Florida. Hi, Kristen. Nice to be here, although not as nice as it was to be in Miami for a story over the weekend. All right, let's get started. We're going to talk about sanctuary cities. It's a huge issue throughout the country. Trump's immigration order was dealt a serious blow by the courts, but what really hasn't been tested is his position on sanctuary cities. Anita, what is the state of play on Trump's various threats against jurisdictions countrywide? Well, the White House actually is feeling pretty good about it. Trump advisors are telling me that they feel good that Miami-Dade and some other cities and counties around the country are saying, hey, we can't be a sanctuary city anymore because we want our federal money. Now, there are a lot of big cities, New York, Chicago, others that say, we don't care. (laughs) We don't want our money. We're okay with it because that's just not how we're going to operate. But, you know, basically what the White House is saying is it's been a couple weeks. Let's play the long game. We think that when these localities realize the threat, the money that they're not going to get, that they're going to take a different stance. That's really interesting when we think about California. Let's listen to this clip of Donald Trump talking to Bill O'Reilly. I just spent the week in California. As you know, they are now voting on whether they should become a sanctuary state. How do you see it? Well, I think it's ridiculous, uh, sanctuary cities. Uh, As you know, I'm very much opposed to sanctuary cities. They breed crime. There's a lot of problems. 
If we have to, we'll defund. We give tremendous amounts of money to California. So you're going to defund. California, in many ways, is out of control, as you know. Obviously, the voters agree. Otherwise, they wouldn't have voted for me. So Chris, jump in here. What would it mean for California to lose federal money? Well, I think what you hear from most California elected officials, folks in Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Sacramento, is that these threats are largely empty. They don't think that the federal government can do this. They don't think there's a legal way to do it. They don't think that the Republican-controlled Congress, including uh, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, would allow uh, federal funds to his home state to be cut. The other aspect you have is sort of a a policy one, which is that California is a, a huge donor state in a sense of sending a lot of money to the federal government. And so I think if you were to try to pull federal money, you would face a huge number of obstacles. Well, it's not just a donor state in terms of how much money California sends to the Treasury Department. The political implications of this thing are rich, are they not, Anita? I mean, we're talking about a Republican president going after a state that um, not only didn't vote for him, but started talking about exiting the union after his election. Have you met Donald Trump? He doesn't care. (laughs) And I say that a lot. I think I said that last week about something else. He sees it as a win. And, you know, Chris is right that there's been some court cases where it looks like actually this language may not survive a court challenge. And let's be clear here. Someone's going to sue. I mean, they're pretty much ready for a court battle. But the thing of it is, is he loses, he still wins. And here's why. He is showing himself as a man of action. He is doing something different. He's going after them. He's a fighter. And that's what Donald Trump wants to prove. On Sanctuary Cities, Chris, how does it play in California? What are the papers saying? What are the voters saying? You have polls that show large majorities of Californians who believe that the state should be able to kind of go its own way in terms of policies. Um, You have the Senate leader. We had uh, dinner with him last night. You know, the one thing you think about is, uh, you know, this, these are sort of numbers on a ledger. You're talking about $350 billion that, uh, that comes into the state. But they see it as a deeply personal issue. This is like an affront to, to everything a lot of our leaders stand for. You've heard Jerry Brown talk about defending our people. So it, it's, it's a much more sort of personal threat that you're seeing. And, uh, you know, it, it goes way beyond the politics. I think people really feel it. You're seeing Tens of thousands of people pour into airports and onto the streets. And I don't think uh, you've heard the last from California on this. You know, Chris, it's fascinating you say that the the leaders there in California are really jumping in to defend uh, sanctuary cities, because here in North Carolina, our legislature has gone against sanctuary cities several years ago to try to ban any sort of policies like that for local governments here. And there really wasn't a whole lot of backlash to that in the legislature. It's Republican dominated, and even the Democrats didn't really put up much of a fight on that. And um, what I've heard from the League of Municipalities here is that most of the sanctuary city policies have gone away without a whole lot of fighting and uh, just a few protests here and there. I mean, I think this is the question in Miami, which was, as uh, Sean Spicer noted in a press briefing, Miami-Dade was the one who who buckled, the first one to say, oh, we're not going to be a sanctuary anymore. Uh, We never declared ourselves one anyway, so we're not going to risk losing all this money. And they're getting, you know, praise from Trump on Twitter. And you have a real identity crisis uh, among some politicians and members of the public are really upset. I was at a meeting yesterday, an organization meeting of progressive activists who were saying, how can you be a city with a majority foreign born population with an immigrant mayor, with a majority immigrant county commission and suddenly declare yourself to be the first municipality that's going to drop your troubles with ICE? I mean, it just feels like we're on the verge of this 
political moment with a showdown vote coming up Friday down here at County Hall, and a bunch of politicians are not willing to step up and really take a strong position on this. It's just been a, a, I don't know if it's a sign of political cowardice in the Trump era, or just like Anita said, it's early, and they're just going to wait it out. It was actually a surprising move um, by Miami-Dade of all of the counties in Florida to move first on this. Why Miami? And what what's happening in the rest of the state? What's the governor have to say? Well, what's interesting about the Miami-Dade mayor is that he's a Republican who said he voted for Hillary Clinton. And his son is a lobbyist and attorney who has just created a new firm just to lobby the Trump administration because he has worked on behalf of the Trump organization before locally. So there are very close ties between Trump and Dade County. He once tried to buy the public golf course on Crandon Park. At the state level, as in North Carolina, uh, they Republican-controlled legislature really wants to ban sanctuary cities. And while the governor has declined to weigh in on that for now, he has tried to say that this is a federal issue. The state lawmakers are saying, we want control in Tallahassee. We don't want cities to be able to make these calls. So it's, I think, going to be an ongoing issue. And it was probably telling from one of Spicer's last briefings that he had those Skype seats from around the country that I think three out of four or five questions were all about sanctuary cities. And we're talking about places like Kentucky and Spanish language media and California and Florida. I don't think this is going to go away for a while. You've got the Spanish language media in Florida, but it's not like Florida has a monopoly on a diverse population. I mean, North Carolina has an increasingly diverse population. California obviously has a heavy Hispanic presence. And you also mentioned something really interesting. You used the word identity crisis. Let's listen here to Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg talking to ABC 10 News in Sacramento. He's talking about people's civil rights being under threat. We are not going to trade the civil rights of people for federal money. You know, you compromise about a lot in politics, but you don't compromise people's civil rights. Chris, how do you see this playing out? So two things. One, we have a brand new attorney general appointed by Governor Jerry Brown, longtime congressman Javier Becerra, who has come in and, you know, made no secret about the fact that he is rearing to go in terms of uh, filing lawsuits on behalf of the state, on behalf of the legislature. You also have kind of a strange and interesting development coming out of the legislature. They've retained former Attorney General Eric Holder, who is doing some legal work for them on a $75,000 contract. And he visited the Capitol last week and talked about, you know, potentially uh, doing some legal consulting. And I, I would think that the sanctuary city issue would be front and center. Man, the Obama administration just won't go away. They won't go away. Have you seen them on Twitter? <laughs> oh, man. OK, Colin, um, what's really interesting to me about what's happening in North Carolina is just it's like a microcosm for the entire country. You've got such a divide between your cities and, and the rest of the state right now. What do you think is going to happen on sanctuary cities? Well, there's a bill out uh, just in the last week here in North Carolina that wants to add some teeth to this 2015 sanctuary city ban. There wasn't any sort of penalty, uh, even though a lot of the cities did comply with the 2015 law. So last year, they tried to take away school and road construction funding. That didn't end up passing through both chambers, although it did pass the Senate. Uh, This year, they're looking at some more minor revenue sources to take away, things like beer and wine tax revenues, telecommunications tax revenues. So sort of a smaller pot of money, but another way to kind of continue to moving forward this issue. Republicans really want to make this a big deal. And I, I think what you see in North Carolina, foreshadowing of what we're going to see at the, the national level as uh, sort of Trump's movement uh, and the control of Congress among Republicans moves forward uh, in the next few months and years. 
Anita, last word on this. What can Donald Trump do without approval of Congress to deny funds to the states? Well, I think he thinks he'll have some friends in Congress. <laughs> We've seen that a lot of Republicans, obviously Republicans control both chambers, a lot of Republicans have just kind of not said a lot about some of the things they don't agree with. They've just kind of said, OK, we're going to get some other things out of him. So we're going to let a few things go. And this might be one of them. I mean, we have seen some strong leaders from Capitol Hill, but basically if they want to get some other things done, they're going to say OK to this. Let's get to Trump's foreign policy. The second thing we wanted to talk about today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is coming to Washington again. The last time he was here, he did an address to Congress that was not pre-approved by Barack Obama. Let's listen to Bibi talking to the media before he boarded his flight. The alliance between Israel and America has always been extremely strong. It's about to get even stronger. Uh, President Trump and I see eye to eye on the dangers emanating from the region, but also on the opportunities. And we'll talk about both, as well as upgrading the relations between Israel and the United States in many, many fields. Katie, I want you to come in here because you spent some time last week and over the weekend in South Florida talking with the conservative community about this odd thing that we see happening in the Trump administration, this feeling that Trump is pro-Israel, perhaps more supportive of Israel than a U.S. administration has been in a long time, but also surrounding himself with people who have some linkages to anti-Semitic slash white supremacist movements. Right. So this is a very complicated time for the Jewish community. I was just down in South Florida over the weekend. I spoke with a couple of members of Congress from down there. They tend to be Jewish Democrats, uh, the ones with whom I spoke, Congressman Deutsch, Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz. But I also spoke with people who are tied to the Republican Jewish Coalition, other folks who are very involved in sort of the pro-Israel world. And, uh, you know, it's a confusing time for some of them because on one level, they have been horrified by some of the rhetoric that we've seen from the White House recently. Most significantly would be how the White House talked about Holocaust Remembrance Day. The president issued a statement. Um, he didn't mention Jewish suffering in, in the statement in talking about the Holocaust. There was a lot of pushback to that, but, you know, the, it was sort of the White House response to the pushback, dismissing it as pathetic, as asinine. That's what really troubled a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum within right. the Jewish community. Right. Because they didn't just say it was a mistake or an oversight or right. someone junior wrote it. Instead, they said, actually, Jewish members of our team wrote that right. and it was deliberate. Right. And that has shocked people um, You really in a way that I didn't understand before sort of getting down to Florida, which, of course, has a big Jewish community. So this is a really uncomfortable dynamic for the Jewish community in general. But Jewish Republicans uh, feel that President Barack Obama was disastrous in their view for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Obviously, other Jews have a different view on that. But, you know, there are some of these Republicans who feel that things were so bad the last eight years that they are actually willing to give President Trump some leeway. They find some of this rhetoric uncomfortable. They find some of his supporters problematic. But they say, you know, he offers a chance to really reset things um, in terms of the U.S.-Israel relationship. So, you know, we're disappointed with some of the rhetoric, but, you know, let's give him a chance and see if he can improve things. Anita, what do people inside the White House say when confronted with these feelings from the Jewish community in America, these feelings that this is an administration that might not be anti-Semitic, but certainly isn't doing much to stop anti anti-Semitic messages from seeping out. Well, it's interesting because the folks Katie talked to might disagree with this. But here's what I heard this weekend when I talked to Trump advisors who say 
No. I mean, this is just Democrats saying this. You know, Democrats are going to say this stuff for the next four years. They're going to criticize us on everything, including this one. It's just not out there anymore. It's just not an issue anymore. All of that stuff about Steve Bannon, the alt-right, anti-Semitism, eh, just Democrats. Oh, and they are so wrong on that. A lot of uh, Jewish Republicans, you know, regardless of what they think about Trump and Israel, including some of those who do think he's going to be an improvement over Obama, they say on this issue, they don't understand why the White House won't just acknowledge Jewish suffering and won't just acknowledge that, you know, perhaps the statement was offensive. And, you know, they say what's even more offensive is this sort of pushback on the community. And so this is an issue that's actually not going away. Well, on the Holocaust Remembrance Day, there's one thing you've got to remember, and this has nothing to do with the Holocaust. Donald Trump doesn't like to apologize. So let's say that it was an oversight. He's still not going to apologize. Let's say, you know, he just doesn't do that. And that's not his MO. Absolutely. Interestingly, he gave an interview to Yisrael Hayam, which is an Israeli paper closely associated with Sheldon Adelson, who is a major Republican Jewish donor, just had dinner with Trump last week. But in this interview, um, Trump actually seemed to be a little bit critical of settlements and suggested that he wants Israel to be reasonable. And it's sort of unclear what he means by that. And he also kind of hedged on whether he would or wouldn't move, you know, the embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem anytime soon. That's uh, a critical yeah, change. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Mean, one of the things that brought the Jewish American community around Trump. Right? A slice of it, at least. Yes. A slice of it, yeah. at least, yeah. was the idea that yeah. he was going to get behind Jerusalem as the capital of the country and right. move the American embassy there. Right. Well, and the, the person that he wants to appoint as ambassador you know, absolutely embraces that, and, and he is you know, very pro-settlement, which is a divisive issue within Israel itself. But you know, it's been very interesting to see how he has modulated that language over the last couple of weeks. And let me tell you what senior advisors in the White House are saying about all of that on China and some other things. It's not that he's backtracking. It's that it's only been three weeks. Give us some time. He's meeting leaders for the very first time. He just met the prime minister of Japan on Friday. He needs some time. And it's such a funny thing to say, considering the bluster from the campaign. This is exactly why people voted for him is because he was out front and he was so aggressive. And now he's come into the White House and he's seen exactly what everybody else has seen him before him is. These are really complicated issues. You were saying he doesn't like to apologize, Anita, but it's almost like admitting that maybe during the transition you got a little bit ahead of yourself and and not that anyone at the White House will say it, but maybe they just weren't ready to deal with some of this stuff when, as president-elect, Trump said things that got him in trouble and really scared foreign leaders around the world. Well, look at the last three weeks. They probably have got a little bit ahead themselves on a lot of different things. They're getting a lot of criticism for a lot of different things. And some of those are leaks that are coming out of the White House about various calls that he's had, like with an Australian prime minister telling him that, you know, he's going to end this call. It's not the best call he's had today. Um, but what we've seen... I do that all the time. I don't know. <laughs> Is that how you end calls it's with world leaders? how I end um, calls with reporters. <laughs> journalism, diplomacy, same thing. Um, <laughs> we're they would not it. call them missteps at the White House. They would say two things. One, this is Donald Trump being Donald Trump. You should have realized that's who you got. You should have realized it from the campaign, from the transition. He hasn't backed down and he's talking to world leaders like he talks to anyone else. But he's done a lot of, as we've just indicated, he's done a lot of step back. You know, some people would not call that a misstep. In fact, I've talked to several Republicans that are not in the White House on Capitol Hill, strategists who say, we're okay with that. We want him to think things through. So this is actually a good sign. Anita, what does Trump want from the meeting with Netanyahu? Well, what they say at the White House is senior officials say, hey, this is their first real meeting. (laughs) So give us some time. They're not making any promises. He has 
a lot of big issues, and we've talked about a couple of them. He doesn't want to make any decisions right now. He wants to kind of get that conversation going, get on a better start than he had with Barack Obama. Katie, what does Netanyahu want from the meeting? So a couple things. So um, as always, you know, he wants to see the U.S. coming out with strong support for Israel and international bodies like the U.N. He wants to see opportunities to work together against Iran, which Israel and the, and the U.S. see as, you know, potentially a big threat. Um, but also a lot of folks with whom I've spoken who have worked in Israel, who, who have a lot of contacts over there, say that there may be some seeking of clarification over this language on settlements. You know, that sort of shift that we saw from Trump on Friday. We also saw uh, Sean Spicer offering some language that seemed maybe at odds with the more more open language uh, that Trump had used on the issue during the campaign. So we may see some seeking of clarity there. Jared Kushner has a relationship with Bibi, does he not? He does. He does. Well, and, and that's an interesting point. And, you know, one thing that you know, Jewish Republicans with whom I've spoken have noted is that, you know, even though they may be uncomfortable with some of the things Trump or his White House have said, look, he has a Jewish son-in-law. He has a Jewish daughter. Um, their grandkids are Jewish. And, and not only a Jewish son-in-law, but Jared Kushner and his family have known Netanyahu's for years. That makes them feel a little bit better in, in offers Trump a little bit more breathing room from some of these influential Jewish Republicans. It kind of feels like Jared has emerged as the shadow foreign policy expert of the administration, no? I'd agree with that. I mean, one thing we see is that his son-in-law and his daughter are hugely influential in what he does. But we've also heard Donald Trump say over and over he thinks his son-in-law can handle the Israeli-Palestinian issue and solve the Middle East peace crisis. And he's also a foreign policy advisor on Mexico. So a journalism career can lead somewhere. (laughs) Ouch. Oh, wow. Our executive producer, Davin Coburn, has something to say to that. We can't use the fighting words over here. (laughs) I'm surrounded by reporters. All right, Colin, I want to ask you something. Last week, we talked about what happens when politics crosses over into pop culture. And in North Carolina, you're dealing with something similar with sports. In light of NC's controversial HB2 bathroom bill, the NCAA is threatened to pull all of its college championships out of the state until 2022. Your colleague down there in Raleigh at the News and Observer, Luke DeCock, recently spoke to Brian Murphy on McClatchy's ACC Now podcast. Take a listen to this. I've followed you know, the controversial bathroom bill that's put North Carolina in a political crossfire all year. This does have an impact on the ACC and the NCAA. They've pulled a bunch of events out of there. The men's college basketball tournament, you know, the the big one, is scheduled to be in Brooklyn the next few years, but is supposed to come back to North Carolina in 19 and 20. Do you get a sense that all this will be cleaned up by then? I don't see this lingering as an issue for North Carolina that long, just because the damage being done is so severe that eventually there's going to have to be a political reckoning here. I think when you bring basketball into the equation in North Carolina, it starts to transcend politics and people are pissed off about that. And the big risk, the thing that I don't think enough people realize, is that the events for the 18-19 through 21-22 academic years are all out for bid right now. There's the potential that if this doesn't get fixed, North Carolina could get passed over by the NCAA from the fall of 2016 to the spring of 2022. And that is absolutely incalculable damage to North Carolina. In Cary, North Carolina, which is where I grew up, there's a beautiful baseball complex. If the NCAA were to make a decision to 2022, You're not just talking about football and basketball. You're talking about a bunch of other sports. You're talking about dozens of events at every level. The Division II College World Series, it had to move. Division III tennis, I believe, that was in Cary. You know, the women's lacrosse next spring was coming to Cary for the first time, and that got taken away. It would be a big deal anywhere. But North Carolina is a state, culturally, traditionally, that attends, supports, 
believes in college athletics. This is a college sports state and not just football and basketball. And the NCAA likes to come here because they know people will go and they will be treated well. And HB2 has just made it completely moot. What's the latest down there, Colin? The state legislature here has failed to take any action in response to the NCAA's threat last week. They're putting it all on the Democratic governor, saying it's in his court. He says it's on them to just do a simple repeal. They say they don't have the votes among the Republicans. So really, you know, basketball, riflery, soccer, all these other NCAA sports are are stuck in park right now. We don't know whether they're going to be here or not. But uh, certainly North Carolina is going to be none too happy if we have no championships for the next you know, four or five years anywhere in the state. Did you name check riflery? Yeah, because I, I got the list of the sports that are in jeopardy, and I was Who like, "Who are you, Robin Hood?" <laughs> <laughs> I think he used a bow. Okay, that's right. Uh, that's right. let's um, jump now to our election tracker. Each of you is going to identify one politician, one development, or one issue from the last week that did something relevant to the next election, whether it be in seventeen, eighteen, or twenty twenty. And the first person up this week, Katie Glick. Okay, so Alan Cobb is the person I mentioned last week. He is a former Trump staffer who was running for a Republican seat to sort of get the the nomination for a Republican seat in Kansas. He lost. We have Ron Estes as our next candidate for the 4th Congressional District. I think that's something to certainly keep an eye on as moving forward we try and gauge the strength of the Trump brand down ballot. Patty? I'm going to go with Jeff Atwater. He is the Florida CFO. Florida is now a national leader in transparency and accountability. And to show these businesses and politicians that I was serious about transparency, I put more auditors in place and I've increased the number of audits. He said last week that he is leaving at the end of the legislative session so that he can go teach at Florida Atlantic University. He's got more than 20 months left on his term, and this means Governor Rick Scott gets to appoint his replacement, and that gives the governor a lot of power going into the legislative session and going into 2018 when he's supposed to run for the U.S. Senate. Someone will owe him for that seat, and suddenly Rick Scott is sitting pretty once again in Tallahassee. Anita. I am for the second week in a row going to go with an issue and not a person. And this week I'm going with the vetting ban uh, executive order of Donald Trump's. It's impacting one of the big races this year, which is the Virginia governor's race. The mainstream Republican candidate has been hiding a little bit on the vetting ban, hasn't really said what he thought. Finally, after being asked multiple times, he called it rational. And then we have the Democrats that are really, really going to use this in the race. And I think that's indicative of what's going to happen down the road in other elections. Colin, you're up. Winston-Salem City Councilwoman Dee Dee Adams announced last week that she's going to be taking on Congresswoman Virginia Fox in one of the more conservative districts in North Carolina. Certainly a challenge for her to, to take that on since uh, Virginia Fox has won by pretty good margins over the past few elections. But it's a sign that Democrats are, are definitely going to try to make some effort in, in all the congressional districts, even the ones that are uh, Republican dominated in 2018. All right, Chris, you go. Everybody's got their eyes on Kamala Harris, the new senator from California. I am picking Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, who last week got President Barack Obama's endorsement sometime between uh, Obama's kite surfing. I will say that Los Angeles and other big cities have always been a place that are welcome to refugees, to asylum seekers, and we will continue to be a place of refuge, a place that immigrants can come to and where they can feel safe. Um, And I think people are looking into whether this might mean uh, possibly an endorsement down the road. Uh, Dianne Feinstein's seat might be up, and we know Eric Garcetti shares a consultant with Feinstein, and and, an Obama endorsement would certainly uh, be a huge boon in that race. 
That's Chris for the win on that one. I'm going with John Assoff. He's the Democratic candidate for a special election for Tom Price's seat. The whole world is watching us right now. They want to see what kind of people the American people are. And what we are showing them across the country today is that we are courageous, we are humble, we are kind, and we will fight. It's basically a test of whether the Trump backlash can actually turn into real political gain in a seat Clinton won. So I'll be looking for him, see how much he can raise beyond that 500000 he already has from the online liberal community. All right, that was a good show. That's it for us. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Kristen. Bye-bye, Anita. Thanks. I'm headed over to the White House for Donald Trump's third press conference. Colin, enjoy North Carolina. Thanks. Uh, enjoy the, the craziness of D.C. this week. Chris, don't get drowned out. I will not. I will stay dry. And bye-bye, Patty. Talk to you next week. See you after perhaps another weekend in Mar-a-Lago. Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We want to hear from you, so please send questions and comments to btb at mcclatchy.com. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. We might even ask you to call into our show. Talk to you next week.